the first, two reasons I showed that clip, as I said, the first is an homage to the aforementioned Skylar Bowell. Like Skylar, the soggy bottom boys also hail from Kentucky, and as we saw in the clip, the similarities are eerie. <laughs> is that cool jig something they teach in school, part of the phys ed program in the state of Kentucky? Because I really think you should do that for us some Sunday as a sermon illustration, so... That's the first reason I showed that clip. The second reason for that clip is actually found in the title of the song and in the lyrics, if you read them. The song they sing is called Man of Constant Sorrows. Now these men, if you've seen the movie, have experienced many hardships in their lives, dealing with one blow after another that life has brought them. Poverty, prison, heartbreak, betrayal have all contributed to the words and the meaning and the depth of this song that they now sing for people's enjoyment. And that is a great lead into our message today because today's message in our current series, The Future King, is itself called Man of Sorrows. Over the past nine months, we've studied the Old Testament book of Isaiah. We see that Isaiah possesses some unique and important passages that other Old Testament books do not. One unique aspect about the book of Isaiah is the fact it talks about Jesus' birth more than any other book of the Bible. And on the other side of the spectrum, and what we're going to talk about today, is it talks also about the suffering and death of Jesus more than any other book of the Old Testament. This man of sorrows, who will live a sorrowful life, yet will live a life of infinite purpose and worth. So if you have your Bibles... Please turn with me for the final time to Isaiah 52, chapter 52, verse 13. And if you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along on the screen. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and is formed beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This passage that we're talking about today begins in chapter 52 with verse 13. And it begins with an important reminder to us. Before we even begin the journey into the future suffering of the Messiah, which is what Isaiah is talking about, God wants us to first remember and clearly understand that he, the Messiah, Jesus, is above all else God's chosen one. 
that none of what is going to happen to him that Isaiah is talking about happens accidentally. Don't ever forget, Jesus is preeminent in glory. Let's look at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Before we delve into the minutia of what happened to Jesus on his path to the cross, God wants to clear the air. He wants to remove any ambiguity or confusion. That what is about to happen happens because God has foreordained it and Jesus the Son has submitted himself to it. This is an important and powerful truth in the New Testament. We can sometimes forget this when we think about the, the suffering of Jesus. In John 17, a prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he went and endured this, he prays this in verses 4 and 5. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see the centrality of the glory of Jesus before this is about to begin. And Paul continues this when he talks about what Jesus did in this path, in this journey. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Paul writes this. Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we delve into the suffering of Jesus Christ, we can sometimes forget that everything that happened was according to a plan. There was not one event, one strike, one lash, one drop of blood that was not foreordained by God the Father with complete submission to that plan of the Father by the Son, Jesus Christ. Nothing was accidental. I think this is an especially important point for all of us here who ourselves face various trials and struggles in life because we do not make the connection. It may not feel like it, but just like our Lord Jesus, if we are Christians, if we are children of God, if we are followers of Jesus, God has said the same reality exists for us. That our struggles, as hard as they are, as difficult to conceive, are themselves foreordained by God. God is always in control, especially in the lives of his children. And here's why. Because though your suffering and your trial may not be taken away, the fact that Jesus himself endured this and endured this knowingly for the purpose for which he did, that's supposed to bring you and I comfort in the midst of our trial, even if the struggle is not taken away. Because the struggle and the trial is still temporary. It's as temporary as our life is. And whether it's in this life or in the life after, it will go away and the eternal promise of God will become our reality. Yeah. So I want to remind you with that this morning. If you're in the struggle, if you're struggling, whatever the issue, the grief, the affliction, Jesus has been there. He was asked to walk that path and he walked it. And knowing he did this, we are to be encouraged that Jesus did this, I can endure for however long God has this for me. Because like Jesus, 
was exalted and glorified, so too a day will come when I will be delivered and exalted with him. So that's my word to you from this opening verse. And that leads us into verse 14 and 15, which is our second point. Jesus' destiny was literally unthinkable. Let me read this. It's a little confusing, but I'll summarize it for us. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. What's that saying is the reality of what's happening, happening is so surprising that the kings have nothing to say. The power brokers, once they see and realize what has really happened, they're speechless. Because no one could have thought or understood what would happen. It's nowhere on the radar. We see this in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Lord of the Rings reference, check. (laughs) The whole story of the Lord of the Rings is based on the mission of Frodo the Hobbit, who's trying to destroy this ring of power, and the terrible bad guy named Sauron, who's trying to retrieve the ring from him so that he can rule the world with it. At one point in the story, the good wizard Gandalf points out to his company that the idea that Frodo or anyone would want to destroy a ring of power has not even come into his mind. Wouldn't even entertain the thought of that. It is unthinkable. And this is how the Israelites of Isaiah's day thought. And this is how the Israelites of Jesus' day thought as well. Their promised Messiah living out this terrible prophecy mentioned here in Isaiah, he's supposed to be a conquering king. This would never happen, not in a million years. And this is hard enough for us today to believe and understand and imagine that God, the creator God of the universe, would do this? What? Really? And this is the big reason why faithful Israelites and Jews, even today, still struggle and stumble over Jesus is because he suffered when he should have won. He did win, not in the way that they wanted. Mark talks about the fulfillment of this prophecy in Mark 10, 34, and he says this, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. So here we see Isaiah's prophecy being revealed and being fulfilled in the New Testament. Now at this point, after verse 15, we make a pivot from chapter 52 to chapter 53. And the first five verses of 53. And this leads into our third and final point, but it has several subpoints. So we're going to spend the rest of our time on this point and on these passages. And our third point this morning is this. His, Jesus' earthly life was all about suffering and sacrifice. Let me say that again. Jesus' earthly life is all about suffering and sacrifice. Now, suffering as it's defined is this, the state of undergoing pain, distress, and hardship. And when Jesus chose to enter our world, he embraced these fully. His life was riddled with it. But whereas the suffering of humanity, our suffering, or the suffering of people out and about may not have any redemptive value, Jesus' suffering was necessary for his sacrifice. Jesus' suffering, being the creator of the world before sin infected it, and being the perfect son of God who lived the perfect life, his suffering enabled his life to serve as the sacrifice for our sins. We have sinned against God, all of us. We have betrayed God. We've broken the laws of God. 
And that sin deserves justice, judgment. Sadly, that judgment is death to all who sin. In other words, his suffering and sacrifice would take our place and lead to salvation. I was thinking about times of struggle and suffering in my own life, and I don't think it's a story I've ever told from my time in the Marines. Marine story, check. (laughs) The hardest days of my life to this present day were the months of January and February of 1994. My dad had died at age 51. On December 1st, 1993, that's only five years from where I'm at now. It's a little bit, whoa, wow. I had not yet reached my first full year in the Marine Corps. I was newly stationed in Pensacola, Florida in the months to follow. Went home with a friend of mine to Denton, Texas, where he hung out with his family over Christmas that year and came back to my duty station in the, uh, January of 94 there in Pensacola, Florida. Now, I had had a recommitment experience pretty profound with God in May of my senior year, a year and a half earlier, in May of 92. But circumstances, some events, and then the the passing of my father led me to believe wholeheartedly that my life was spiraling downward. I remember sitting in my barracks room, tears in my eyes, a gaping hole left in my heart from the broken relationship that my father and I had always had, whose passing now all but guaranteed that that hole would never be filled. And there in my journal, it was a spiral notebook with a, a gray cover. I can see it. I wrote the words, I'm not sure I want to live anymore. Little did I know in those terrible days that God was planning and planting seeds for a powerful redemptive work in the months to follow on base there in the lives of the Marines in my units. He would bless them with an awakening that to this day has been the most dynamic revival I've ever seen or been acquainted with personally. And he would bless me personally with a spiritual growth and an intimacy and a miracle-filled period in my life and journey that, again, has not been experienced or seen again to this day. You know, sometimes God asks us to live a life of suffering and sacrifice. And we don't know when it will end, and we don't know all the details, but he does have a greater purpose. Sometimes he lets us see it, sometimes he might not. But my point is this, there's always a purpose to it. We are his children. And we see this in Isaiah. We see the suffering of Jesus that he modeled for us, that he walked before us. Beginning with verse 1 and the subpoint, his humanity was inconceivable. And yes, that word does mean what I think it means. Boom, Princess Bride reference. Yes, thank you. Isaiah writes this, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Once again, in this verse, we are reminded that this prophecy about the Messiah's suffering was impossible to comprehend and believe. Only God would think of this, and in so doing, reveal the extent of his love for us, which is seen 
pretty clearly in the verse that many of us know, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, the son shall not perish, but of everlasting life. And we see that now, and we always like, oh yeah, that's the gospel story right there in one verse. But this was said by Jesus to Nicodemus, who was one of the most brilliant religious leaders of the day, who actually didn't have a hardened heart against Jesus, but was inquiring and wanting to know. And even Nicodemus could not understand or comprehend that what the, the Messiah would suffer and die, would give his life as a sacrifice. I don't get it. And so we need to be reminded that this is such an abnormal path for God to carve out for Jesus to walk. It was inconceivable. And which leads us to verse two, another beautiful description about the life of Jesus on earth. Isaiah 53 verse two says this, for he, Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Let me say that last part again. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Newsflash here, his physical appearance was forgettable and that's being kind. Talk about adding insult to injury. You're gonna do all this, the cross, the sins of the world, and you're gonna be ugly too? I'm serious. We need to stop and realize something. That our view of Jesus, sadly, has been skewed by centuries of artists and Hollywood giving us something that's not true. Nobody wanted to be the artist who painted Jesus accurately as a nobody. They made him beautiful. That's how you get the Sistine Chapel. That's how you get the the top notch. You don't paint him the way Isaiah talked about him because nobody wants to see that. Even in our innate humanity, we we think Jesus has to be this physically beautiful person. It says something very contrary. There's a picture of the portrayals of Jesus portrayed in the movies about his life that Hollywood has done over the past number of years. All of them, handsome men. All of them. I guarantee you, Jesus did not look this handsome. Isaiah tells us straight up, there was no form of majesty to him, no beauty that we should desire him. I wrote down here, we've been hoodwinked, bamboozled. But this is what Isaiah says about him and how he describes him. <laughs> Which made me sit back and think about it. Really? God, is that, is that really how you're doing this? Dude's going to be crucified and he doesn't at least get a Zac Efron treatment, right? I mean, that's not Jesus. Could have been. Chose not to. According to Isaiah, Jesus was plain. He could have been balding, although balding can be handsome in some significant, in some significant context. I don't want to demean all balding uh, persons. He could have had some unsightly scars. My son, Elijah, broke his arm a month ago, and it, both bones in the forearm broke, and his arm got tilted a little bit because of the break. It actually redirected his, his arm. Now, we went to the hospital, they put a cast on, they squeezed it back together with those Cast that they just put in water and it sealed. But I thought, 2,000 years ago, he would have just had an arm that was a little off-center. That was everybody. That could have been Jesus. That was normal. Not the pretty picture that's in our minds. And it made me think this way. And I want you to, I want you to listen in. What about you? 
This morning, do you think about or struggle with how you look, with your appearance, when compared to what the world says is beautiful? With the lack, the lack of beauty that you perceive in yourself? So many of us do. So many people have a deep, deep struggle with how they look. And they attribute value to the exterior, and not good value, bad value because of it. Leaving them always wondering, always wanting, never confident, never content. Jesus walked that same path. He was not a pretty person to look at. He was just like this. And that's okay because that's God's path. And there was a deeper beauty to him. We continue on in verse 3, 53, 3, with the point, his own people found him detestable. That's a strong word, but let's read this passage again. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. Again, he was despised. They give us a despised twice. And we esteemed him not. The Lord, the glorious one, from Isaiah 52, 13, is now detestable, despised, rejected by his own creation. This is heartbreaking. He's Jesus. And for those of you who've had the privilege of placing your faith in him, of experiencing Jesus, of having him come to you in those moments of dark humanity, you know, as well as I do, that Jesus is actually the most lovely and most beautiful person who has ever walked on this earth. And if you've not experienced Jesus in that way, I pray that maybe today you can begin a new journey in doing so because he is lovely. He's a lovely man. And why? He didn't deserve this. Why did Jesus do these three things in verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah 53? And that's our fourth and final point. He did it all to save us. He did it all to save us. Verse 4 and 5 of Isaiah 53 say this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we were healed. His suffering, our salvation. His suffering, our salvation. In summary, in order to save us, his sadness, and he was a man filled with sorrows, imagining having to live his life the way that he lived it. His sadness, his sorrow, his sacrifice is what led to our salvation. Inconceivable. And yet it's the reality of this universe. So how do we respond? How do we respond to this? So we can respond... I'm inviting us to respond in two ways. First and foremost, we should worship him. This is what the creator God did. We should worship him. If you haven't done so recently, this can release you from yourself. 
This can release us from what people think. This can release us from the concerns of, oh, forget about it. This is the glorious gospel story that Isaiah has given to us. We can now see more clearly and understand what Isaiah is saying, what Jesus did to fulfill this, and we should lift his name in this place. And we'll have the opportunity to do that here in a moment. But we should worship him. Straight up, nothing for us. Just worship him for who he is and what he did. Nothing in it for us but to give him the glory and the exaltation we talked about in 52 verse 13. First and foremost, his glory. But second, it didn't stop there. What else could and should we do? We should repent of our sins and follow him. If you haven't yet made a vital decision to surrender your life in exchange for Jesus and the life he wants to give you, now is the time. Now is the day. This is the exchange. This is the beautiful man who wants to come into your life and clear the deck and give you his life, his purpose, his value, his worth, his joy, his forgiveness, his freedom, his salvation. And all you have to do is give up this ridiculous life that you and I try to hold on to each and every day. A glorious exchange that we should enthusiastically want to make. And for those of us who might have made this decision but grown cold in our faith and in our fervency in following him, I want to invite you as well. Let's repent of our sins today. Let's recommit ourselves to the Lord today. Loving him with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our, with all of our strengths, which is the greatest commandment, which is what he has asked us, his children, to do. So join me in praying and inviting God to renew in us what he has done or what he wants to do for the first time. Father God, we are humbled. We are speechless, just like the king's of this earth, the powerful people who present to us that they have it all. But all of us, even the kings, even the presidents, even the billionaires, even those who have everything on this earth, we are speechless before you when we see the reality of what you have done, what Isaiah wrote about, and Jesus, what you fulfilled fully in your life and suffering and death here on earth. I pray that we see it. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you break through the hardness of our hearts, the confusion in our minds, and you allow us in our soul to get it to understand these truths. And in so doing, leave us speechless before you and just in awe. Then, if we haven't yet responded or if it's been a long time since we've come running to your arms, I pray that today might be the day. Today might be the day where we say, okay, Lord, I'm back, I'm in, or here... God, I don't know about this thing, but what Jeremy's saying resonates. I want to, I'm here for the first time. I'm in. I don't know what it means. You just fill out a blue card and ask for help. But I'm in. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the unthinkable, the inconceivable, the glorious, the horrific, and the beautiful. We are so grateful. Help us to be more and more grateful each and every day, not just of our lives, but for the rest of eternity as we celebrate you and worship you together.